Judge, ripped from the case files with Donna Harris, actual arresting officers from the United States Postal Inspection Service, and stories of greed, deception, and fraud. Now your host, Donna Harris. Hello, my fans. This is Donna Harris, and here's another episode of Behind the Badge, ripped from the case files of postal inspectors. Now, let me ask you something. Have you ever heard of the Jewish Indiana Jones? No? Yeah? Well, if you heard of him, that's great. If you haven't, I'm going to tell you about him. When you think of Indiana Jones, you think of, you know, the archaeologist, the adventurer, who always goes out and finds his treasure. Well, this guy... He kind of report, you know, purported himself to be this way, but really was all based on lies. And to really uh, make this even worse, he was a rabbi. So most people would believe a rabbi, but in this case, mm, it's all a bag of lies. So here with me today is Postal Inspector Greg Giazzi, who was the actual case inspector, who's going to tell you about, um, about this case. So uh, welcome, Greg, to the uh, Behind the Batch. So now that I opened up the case file, let's talk a little bit about, you know, this case and, and Menachem Ulis, Rabbi Menachem Ulis. Sure, I'd be uh, happy to, to talk to you about that case. So give me a little background. Um, how, how, first of all, how did postal inspectors get involved in this case? Tell me a little bit about it and then tell me how postal inspectors got involved. Sure. So we work with our partners at the U.S. Attorney's Office, which is the Federal Prosecutor's Office. Uh, I technically or typically work with the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office uh, out of the Southern District of New York. Um, and one day I was there on another matter, and uh, one of the prosecutors I had known from a previous case had come up to me and asked me if I was interested in looking into a new investigation. Um, she had read a Washington Post article about Rabbi Menachem Ulis that had been critical um, of uh, the charity that Menachem Ulis had run. Um, evidently, uh, two reporters at the Washington Post were um, interested in writing a positive story about a man, uh, Menachem Ulis, who supposedly rescued Torahs from all over the world, uh, but more specifically, or in most cases, Eastern Europe, uh, fixed them and then uh, housed them in synagogues uh, in the U.S. and internationally. So she had read an article about this individual, uh, and the article, the, the uh, journalist who had written that article uh, again, it was supposed to be a positive article first, uh, but then as they started researching into it, they started questioning some of the stories that Menachem Ulis had attached to some of the Torahs that he had uh, brought over, that he had supposedly or allegedly brought over from Eastern Europe uh, to the United States. And, and, and these now these, these Torahs were supposed to be Torahs that had been rescued from the Holocaust, um, Torahs that had been hidden by 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 uh, Jewish people uh, during the Holocaust in order to save them, um, and these are sort of the stories that uh, were attached to some of these tours that he he brought to the United States. Okay, so um, so can you tell me about a story? Give me a story that he might have told. 
Sure. So one of the stories he told, at least, uh, at, uh, that he attached to at least one Torah. And keep in mind, he's, while he's doing this, he's running a, a, a charity called Save a Torah. And Save a Torah it, it was a charity that was run out of the uh, Maryland, Washington, D.C. area, which supposed, supposed, which actually did get a number of donations in, uh, to help Rabbi Menachem Eulis with his, with his mission, which was to save these Holocaust territories. So one of the stories he, he told um, related to a Torah, I think it was actually more than one Torah, was that he had taken a trip to the Dachau concentration camp. Um, and as he was uh, walking the grounds, he had found barracks that uh, had housed uh, victims of the Holocaust, um, uh, individuals who were, uh, who were in prison there in, in the barracks. And he claimed that as he was walking through the barracks, uh, his, his foot had gone through a floorboard, um, and he lifted up the rest of the floorboard, and there were Torahs there that he believes um, prisoners from that concentration camp had, uh, had hidden from, from the Nazis. So he claimed to have brought, brought, take, taken them, brought them back to the United States, um, refurbished them, and then housed them in uh, synagogues uh, in various parts of the nation. So did he get did he get money for this when he restored them? How did he how did he pay to restore these things? I mean, what did he what was he receiving? I mean, was he just doing this out of his own pocket or was he getting paid for this? So his charity uh, collected over a million dollars worth of donations. Um, so he was receiving money through the charity and he was also receiving money from individuals who were interested in rescuing uh, Holocaust era tours. Um, the charity, Sevatora, um, had various ways of obtaining uh, donations. One way was through a, uh, like a, a mailing or a newsletter that was sent to potential uh, donors. And this newsletter also um, detailed some of the Holocaust-era Torah stories that Menachem Eulis had attached to these to these Torahs. Um, uh, oh, so um, so because he had he was mailing these contributions, there were people were mailing these contributions, and actually, um, you know, the newsletter was mailed. That's where the mail fraud statute comes in, huh? Okay, so uh, for those uh, listeners that don't know, the mail fraud statute was enacted in 1872. And, um, you know, if there's a... Now, you, you might have to help me out with this because I'm not an inspector, but I have a long history with the Postal Inspection Service. But if, if they... Um, it's you know a scheme to defraud um, or artifice to defraud uh, th those type of things would constitute 
the, it would be part would be found under the mail fraud statute, correct? Correct. Okay, so now we've been uh, enforcing this statute since 1872, so you know, kind of figure we're pretty good at this, right? So, uh, so Greg, I got another question. So, when did this when did this House of Cards or House of Torres start to collapse? Sure. So, uh, when the U.S. Attorney's Office, the prosecutor, uh, read this article that that shed a negative light on um, Menachem Eulis and his charity, uh, read this article, they came to us, uh, the Postal Inspection Service, me in particular, to, to start investigating whether or not um, Menachem Eulis' uh, claims about the tours were uh, true, or if they weren't, if he was um, perpetrating some, some sort of fraud on the Jewish community. So why, I mean, I know you have a relationship with the U.S. Attorney's Office because you work there, but why would um, they ask us as opposed to another agency? Uh, we do a great job. Um, I think uh, he, they, they recognize that. And, uh, and certain cases where there is a mal nexus, they know to come directly to us as opposed to uh, an FBI or a Secret Service. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, yeah, that's true. We do a great job. I mean, we've been investigating mail fraud since uh, 1872. Not myself or Greg, because we're a little young for that, but I'm just saying, we have been. So, obviously, we, we know what we're doing when it comes to the mail fraud statute. So, when he, so how did we find out this was all bogus? I mean, what did we do? How did we find out? Don't give, now, don't give away any investigative techniques, but what did we do? Sure. So, we were able to track down um, all the close to all the stories he had provided to um, donors of Savator, to the synagogues that had um, provided Savator money or Menachem Mules directly money for these Torahs. And we systematically uh, attempted to either validate uh, or disprove uh, the stories that he had provided. So I don't know if you remember. If you remember from before, I told you about the uh, the tours he claimed to have um, rescued from Dachau concentration I, camp. I remember that, but I know our listeners don't know. So um, how do how do we disprove those claims? Sure. So uh, that one was was easier. Uh, I spoke with a representative from that concentration camp um, and from a representative from the, the, uh, one of the Holocaust museums uh, here in Washington, D.C. Um, and they were able to tell me that these barracks that uh, Rabbi Nakamulis claims to have found the Torahs in didn't exist anymore. Um, and that, you know, any story that included him going into barracks in modern times could not have been um, true. Uh, it turns out that those barracks, there's a historical record that show that those barracks had actually been burned down when the camp was rescued by Allied powers um, uh, because there was a either a polio or typhoid outbreak, and they needed to burn those barracks to get rid of the disease. 
Um, so that one was a pretty easy one to disprove. Also, on top of that, you know, Dachau is a museum now. It's not a place where someone can just walk around and if they find Torahs, grab them and without anyone knowing. So um, we were able to disprove that one uh, pretty easily. Wow, that 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 is like a really. I have to say this. I know that's just a really great story. I mean, you know, sometimes I think with um, people who are fraudsters, they they get so caught up in the fraud that they don't think about, you know, what somebody might be able to disprove my claim. So maybe I need to think of something else. So was there another one that you found was maybe a little harder to actually disprove, but you were able to? And if so, how'd you do it? Sure. So I also remember him. And now keep in mind, uh, he would also, during the Torah resettlement ceremonies within some of the synagogues that he brought these alleged Holocaust-era Torahs to, um, he would, it would be a, 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 there'd be a service in the, in the synagogue honoring the Torah, and he would re he would talk about some of these stories and he would give the story attached to the particular Torah that was being um, donated or that was being purchased and brought to that particular synagogue. So now for those listeners who don't know, Torah is, is, is like a Jewish Bible um, and uh, it's very sacred and every single little character in that Torah has to be perfect. And it kind of looks like a, it's, it rolls up. It's not like a book though, it rolls up. It's kind of more like a, a big scroll, it's a, tor a Torah scroll. Um, so uh, he and Rabbi Menachem Mules was also something called a sofer, uh, which is a Jewish scribe. Um, and these, his responsibility as a sofer uh, was to write these Torahs out, and again, they have to be perfect, and if they're not perfect, they're not kosher. Or, if there is a Torah that has some imperfection in it, he could fix the Torah. So he was well-placed to commit this type of fraud. Um, so he, another story he provided was he claimed that uh, um, during an operation in Iraq, United States soldiers, army soldiers, had found a, uh, had been involved in a firefight, and they took cover in a building that they later realized was an old synagogue. And then he claimed that these soldiers were able within the, the hell of, of, of the battle, were able to come across Torah scrolls that had been hidden in this synagogue for hundreds of years. So this was another, then he said through his contacts with the military, he was able to have these Torahs that these soldiers found in a battle returned, uh, brought to the United States, restored, and then provided to synagogues for use. 
But that, that, that seems like that story could be easily checked out if we just asked the military, right? Sure. So I contacted uh, the, the military, the Army specifically, and spoke with a, a military historian who actually works for the U.S. Army. So, you know, in the Army, there's lots of different jobs. You could be, uh, you know, uh, in combat as a ranger or, you know, as an infantryman, or you could be a cook. Well, I guess one of their uh, jobs is a historian. So he was able to uh, look at the specifics of the story that Rabbi Menachem Mulis provided with the Torah, and he was able to tell me that there were uh, the troops that Menachem Mulis claimed were in that area at the time that they found this Torah were not actually there. So his story would have been false. Um, so that's another, you know, it took some calling around in the military, so it wasn't completely easy. But once I found the right person, uh, they document things very well there, and I was able to, to prove that the story was false. He, he also made the mistake of providing the same story to multiple, individ, to multiple uh, synagogues but from different areas. So he would send them a written story for one place, then just change the names or the locations in that story and send it uh, to another synagogue. So that was another way we were able to show that he was falsifying the stories um, associated with the Torah. We also ran a uh, travel history um, and he wasn't in any of the locations, according to his travel history, that, that he claimed he had been uh, when he was conducting these supposed uh, Torah rescue, these supposed Torah rescues. It seems like, I guess, you know, what, what our listeners should know is that no matter where you are, when we're on the case, we'll find you. We'll find out the story and, you know, no, we'll go to, we'll stop at No Limps to find out if you've been uh, victimizing, uh, you know, consumers or if you're a fraudster. And that's the, that's the point. I don't think a lot of people know how far our reach is, really. You know, we can go anywhere for, for, um, to keep the public safe, you know, so, and to find out if you've been lying to the public. Uh, so I don't think that people really know that. So as you're looking at this, so I didn't even know that he was a sofer, and I didn't even know what a sofer was. So this this is this is really uh, interesting. Sure. So look, every one of our mail fraud cases we get um, is a, is because mail fraud is such a broad statute um, that you know it could range from insurance fraud to uh, securities fraud, like stock bond fraud, to, you know, uh, some swindler out there. I mean, it's such a broad statute that every case you get, you're going to be learning something very new. You're going to be learning about an industry or, or uh, you know, in this case, a charity or, you know, which is what makes the mail fraud assignment such an exciting assignment. is you're constantly learning about new things for every case, every, every new case you have. So I have a question. Would 
he have been able to, if he had really found these Torahs, I don't think the countries would have let him bring the, these Torahs out of the country, out of their country, would they? Right. So that that was another angle we were looking at in the beginning. Um, you know, this was either going to be a mail fraud case where he was lying to to donors about the origins of these these Torahs, or it might have been a case uh, involving import and export of, um, of, of historical items, which is also illegal. Um, it, you know, obviously it turned out to be a fraud case, not, uh, you know, an importation of um, historical items type case. So, so you, you mentioned earlier that he, I guess, received donations in the amount of a little over a million dollars. So what did he do with the money? So some of it, there was a charity set up, and, and, and there was uh, in some individuals that worked at the charity. So some of the money went towards, you know, their salaries, um, but, but, but most of it went towards you know, his supposed or rescue, which didn't happen, right? So, you know, he, he just, he saved a lot of it. A lot of it just went into his personal bank accounts, living expenses, those types of things. Wow. So he really didn't do anything spectacular. Like he didn't have a yacht or a penthouse or I don't know. He didn't have anything like that, huh? No, he seemed to keep, uh, he, he seemed to live a modest lifestyle and kept, kept a low profile outside of the work he was doing for Sevatora, he he kept a pretty low profile. So, can you uh, wrap this up for us and let us know what happened to Menachemulus? Sure. So, uh, he we arrested him. Um, he eventually pled guilty, and he served a number of years in prison. Uh, and then I believe he was released sometime in 2016. So um, the, the, the case did garner some media um, because of its, you know, because it was so interesting and because, you know, the victims of this fraud were not only victims monetarily, right? There were all, there were victims emotionally as well. Um, if you, I saw some of the video um, of some of these uh, uh, tour dedications at, at, at the synagogues, and there was, you know, pictures of the, the, the people in the audience, and people were crying because of these stories. A lot of people had um, relatives that might have died in the Holocaust. So this was very, you know, this was very, very important to them. And the fact that he was lying about this just, you know, to make money was, uh, was pretty horrific. Um, so it was also made into, uh, the, it was also made into actually like a, a theater play, like a play that ran in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, was also mentioned on, uh, actually, it was mentioned uh, during the, the news portion of uh, Saturday Night Live. So the, the effects were, you know, far-reaching for this type of fraud case, for sure. So he's a, so he's a celebrity now, or at least his, his uh, crime, it, it, you know, made him a celebrity. It, 
did it did garner some attention for sure. I, and I you know I don't know what he's doing now, um, but he has been uh, out of prison for for a few years. Wow. Well. So is there anything you'd like to um, remind people, you know, as, as a postal inspector, is there anything you'd like to remind people if they think that they um, want to enter a life of crime, if it, certainly if it has a nexus to the U.S. mail, is there anything you want to tell people? Yeah, I mean, obviously don't. You're going to be caught and there's going to be severe repercussions. Um, and to, to those people out there who, those good people out there who are, you know, donating their hard-earned money to, to, to various charities. Make sure you, make sure you do your diligence. Make sure you know what you're uh, donating to. Make sure you know what percentage of what you give actually goes to the charity as opposed to administrative costs. Um, and uh, just be careful out there. Well, Greg, thanks so much. And uh, just as a side note for individuals looking that we don't endorse, we never give endorsements about different uh, charity re review organizations, but you can certainly look at charitynavigator.org to find out uh, about a charity and to see if you, you know, what their administrative costs are. And, and I'd, I'd also tell you to Google it. If someone's had a problem with a charity, you can find that online. So, uh you know, thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Badge, Rip from the Case Files of Postal Inspectors, because actually this was, that was the case inspector. Thanks. Until next time. See you later. Behind the Badge, Ripped from the Case Files, is brought to you by the United States Postal Inspection Service. For more information or to learn more about postal inspectors, please visit USPIS.gov. Or to file a complaint, call 877-876-2455.